Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We are in week four. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, I think if you get it, it's page like 960 from us. I'm, I'm trying to do that from memory. I did not write it down today. I'm sorry. And, and we are in week four of five weeks on the scandalous sayings of Jesus. Uh, maybe another way of saying it is the hard sayings of Jesus. Those things that Jesus says, and when he says them, you go, really? And, and there are a lot of them. What we try to do is just pick kind of some categories and, and then address them. So today we look at Luke chapter 9, and we're going to really focus on verse 23, 24, and 25. So let me just read them, then we'll come back, put them in context, make some comments, and then I'm going to give you a wonderful, I'm going to close today with a wonderful illustration of, of what this really is all about. So Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes, who, I'm sorry, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And then he asks a question. It's a great question. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? Some of the translations will say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Now, Eugene Peterson has uh, taken the scripture and paraphrased it. Modern, so it's a paraphrase, it's not a translation. It's many times it's really helpful. I don't necessarily study from it. I might read it in a devotional setting, but always as I'm working through a lesson, at some point I'll go, what's his paraphrase? Here's his paraphrase on verse 23, 4, 5. He told them what they could expect for themselves. That's going to be a really big point now. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you? That is the, the real you. So really the question that we're kind of asking today is, is how do you become a, a true disciple of Christ, a real follower of Christ? Uh, Luke, when he sent his notes out, Luke is teaching this passage in Gateway, at the Gateway campus today, and, and Luke had a question at the top, and it's a question I love to ask. I think it's an important question to ask because expectations are really key in life, and, and the question is, what's the normal Christian life? What can, what can I expect? So I was, I was watching, obviously, yesterday, football Saturday for me, and they, they had wired one of the coaches, and it was the Iowa State football coach, and he said, this is what you can expect this week. This is what's going to happen. Here's the outcome you want. Here's what you're going to have to do. And he's just shooting it straight with him. Well, that's what Jesus is doing right here. L look with me in the context. Look back ahead. It's, it's verse uh, 18 of chapter 9. And it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them. And he said, who do people say that I am? 
So the disciples are there. This has been a time of, of, of reflection for Jesus, a time for prayer for Jesus. Their guys are there. He breaks the silence with a question. Who do the people say that I am? What's the general opinion out there? And they answered, and they said, John the Baptist, and then others say Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets of old, and you've risen again. And then Jesus asks the question, the big question, who do you say that I am? So that's the question we ask. That's the question we try to keep in front of you all the time. Who's Jesus? He's the issue. We, we can get distracted with all sorts of different things, and we can talk about what kind of music do you like? Do you like this music? Do you like this setting? Do you like these lights? How about this wall? Should there be something back there? Whatever. We can go on and on. What church is right? But the big question for us is, who do you say Jesus is? And Peter answers, and he said, the Christ of God. Again, a different time. The Son of the Living God, the Messiah. And Jesus answered them, gives them a strange warning. He warns them and he said, don't, don't tell anybody about this. That seems weird, doesn't it? In kind of the setting we're in, when we're kind of saying, go make disciples. Well, it's not the right time yet, Jesus says. And then verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So this is the first time Jesus is, is now revealing more and more of, of the plan. And he said, the plan includes something that maybe you hadn't anticipated. I, I have to be rejected and will be rejected. He's speaking prophetically here. This is with certainty. And then I'll be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, at this point in the ministry, what's happening is people are beginning to come, and, and we'll, we'll use the term, but it's not like the way we mean it, ultimately. They were following Jesus. They were attracted to him. Uh, they thought it was cool that the lame could walk and the, and the deaf could hear. They thought it was cool that he could see... 5,000 men plus women plus children and then take some fish and loaves and feed them all. And, and they thought, perhaps, because there was just a lot of, th who is this guy, a lot of anticipation, he may be the guy that's going to free us from the kind of, kind of the shackles of Rome. He's going he's gonna to bring in a whole new political and economic system and everything's going to be okay. And Jesus says, boys, I want to tell you something. Everything's going to be okay, but it's going to be a long way to getting okay. I got to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Ultimately, he's going to say, they persecute me. They're going to persecute you. Slave, and that's you. You're not, you're not better or bigger than your master, are you? He said, this is the normal Christian life. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about this? Uh, Jesus is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he says, on this last day, there'll be many that say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So we go back in the context he painted before that, and he's always straightforward about this. He says there's two ways. There's a narrow way, a wide way. The wide way leads to destruction. There's a whole bunch of people on it. And then there's a narrow way that, that leads to life. And there's not many who find it. And the idea that it's a narrow way, it's a hard way, it's a restrictive way. There aren't many ways. We talked about it. We don't all pray to the same God. We don't all worship the same God. All these religions. 
It's not like there's many spokes in a wheel and they lead to the hub and there's many ways to God and lots of ways. No, there's one way, the narrow way, the hard way. Jesus is the one who says it's narrow and hard. And he also just seems to say in a quantitative measure, there aren't a whole bunch of people who find it. And it's the same thing. It's full disclosure. He says, I don't want you to be surprised. Don't come and think everything is going to be okay. And there's not going to be any hassle. There's not going to be any problems. One author's written this. The gospel is a call for self-denial. It's not a call for self-fulfillment. Now, now there's been a battle over the years on this. I I was thinking about this yesterday. I I brought these in. These came to me yesterday. And and I'll see if I can connect this. I don't know that I can. When my father died, the only two things of him I took are these. They are a blue bonnet margarine tubes. So they're these little plastic containers, you know, you used to get a couple of them. And in them, they are filled to the top, jammed with rubber bands. And so that's my dad. Like if you got in his golf bag, you would find hundreds of tees. And if you went home, you'd find bags. So if we go, we'd go and play a course where the, where the tees are free, he, 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 he couldn't, he would just gobble these tees up. Every time we got ready to play. So I had some friends that used to play the tour. So I would get a lot of, you know, just kind of shirts and stuff. And, and I always have, you know, gloves. And gloves are kind of expensive. And every time we'd go to play, my dad said, hey, have you got a new glove for me? And I would say, no. <laughs> and, and he'd have this glove. And he'd say, look at this. And I'd say, but I know in your locker there's five new gloves that I gave you. I'm not going to give you another glove. <laughs> Paper clips, thousands, pens. Oh, my gosh. Pens, pads, notepads, notepads from, from hotels and, and rest, and anybody, any place, just, just thousands of these, all these things that didn't matter that much. And it was the idea, and then they would say to me, well, he's a product of the depression. That's how they would explain that away. So they didn't have much. So if you, like, I think, I was looking for, I was laughing the other, because I've never used these. When I was looking the other day, I'm looking for a rubber band. I'm thinking, boy, there's the difference. I can't find a rubber band in this whole house. And he would have these, and they were just part of them. I didn't even bother getting the rest of the stuff. But his idea is, you know, there, there aren't many of them. I'm going to get them. And in a, in a sense, in a, you know, if we wanted to be harsh, we'd say, I, you could say save them, or you, you, I would say hoard them. But he's a product of that. Well, there's a sense, I'm stepping back now, which I'm a bit of a product of when I came to Christ. I came to Christ, 1980. I was 30 years old, and at the time, so I'm telling the guys all, all, all now, it's different now, it's more subtle, I think, now, but much more overt then, was this idea of self-love, self-help, self, there was a lot of that, there was a book written, that was it, self, it was called Self-Love, and the whole premise of this book was, till you love yourself, you'll never be any good to anybody. And there was an author, very popular Christian guy, on television all the time, wrote a book called Self-Esteem. And he was taking, and it's called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. So he's saying, here's what it used to be, here's what it needs to be. Let me read this to you. Because when I read this, this, this was part of my formative theological background. It said that he writes this. It is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred in its insistence that, God, that theology be God-centered, not man-centered. So he's saying that's wrong. 
The master plan of God is designed around the deepest needs of human beings. Self-dignity, self-respect, self-worth, self-esteem. The pearl of great price is genuine self-respect and, and, and self-esteem. If we follow God's plan as faithful as we can, we'll feel good about ourselves. God needs you and me to help create a society of self-esteeming people. God's ultimate objective is to turn you and me into self-confident persons. Now, I'm telling you, this may sound aberrant to you, and it is a deviation from biblical theology, but this was all over the place 30 years ago. Listen to this sentence. This is the sentence that set me off. Once a person believes he's an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ. Well, that's exactly the opposite of that. And they sold thousands of these, hundreds of thousands of these. And I would go to churches, and I'd just become a Christian, and I'm reading this, and I'm going, that doesn't even sound right to me. I don't know anything. Can I read it again? Once a person believes he's an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ. I would come at it differently and say, until you understand that you're an unworthy sinner, you'll never respond to the gospel because you never have a need. Or if you respond to a gospel, it's that self-help gospel. And it's a battle through the ages. Jesus is addressing it right here. He understands intuitively what's going on with these guys. They're following me for the wrong reason. So he comes right at him and said, man, here's what this is about. Denying yourself and taking up your cross and follow me. Martin Luther had to fight this. He wrote in proposition number four of his 95 assertions, he wrote, until the sinner comes to hate himself, he does not enter the kingdom of God. Now, when he means hate there, he's not talking about you go out and start to cut yourself up. He's saying, understand yourself. Hate the old sinful self. That's what he's saying. Tim Keller writes, self-denial is not self-hatred. Self-hatred is still, in reality, a form of self-centeredness. You are absorbed in your own problems. Your attention and your focus are dominated by your flaws and your failures. Self-denial is rather self-forgetfulness. That's what A.W. Tozer said. Whether I'm thinking good about myself or bad about myself, I have a problem because in either case, I'm thinking about what? Myself. Paul wrote to Timothy, let me just read you this, because it's a problem that's been in the church from the beginning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, realize this, that in last days, difficult times, for men will be lovers of, and as a result of that, they'll be lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, Conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and hold to a formliness of God, a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, they deny the power of Christ. So this has been around forever. What Jesus is saying is this is a real disciple. So put it together what we saw two weeks ago. There will be some who even have a proclamation of faith. There will be some, and maybe you know them. There will be some who will go to a breakfast or a lunch or a crusade or an event with you or a concert. And in, in, in the moment, it, it, they, they may say, that's what I want. I want Jesus. Give my life to Christ. 
Ask Jesus into my heart. Ask forgiveness for my sin. And there may be at that moment, there may even be some, I would say, even, even some level of sincerity. But, but now we find out how real that is. I, I can't be any more safe. So at my moment, March 6, 1980, at that moment, roughly 8.30 in the morning, God opened my eyes. I saw myself. I saw his provision. I came to Christ. I believe in him. Whatever words you want to use, I became a Christian. I was no more saved then than I am now. But there's evidence of that. Now, Jesus isn't dealing in the passage in front of us here. He's not necessarily dealing with the evidence. That would be fruit. We've talked about that before. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Galatians 5. So he said, those are the things you're going to say. So even when he talks about fruit, he doesn't say you're going to do this, not do this, do this. He said, here's going to be these fruit. These are these attitudes. But, but he said, here's the characteristics of a follower. They're going to deny themselves. What, what does that mean? Well, they're all of a sudden not going to be driven by their own agenda their own wants and their own needs in and of themselves. There will be a change of mind. We call it repentance. There's three Greek words that are, that are translated with the idea of repentance. One talks about a reversal of your thinking. It's a mental attitude. Another talks about regret or sorrow. There's, a, there's a, really a sickness over, over, my, over my sin. And then the third one means direction of my life. So repentance is this idea of, of changing my mind, and the result is a change in behavior. I change my mind and my emotion and my will. There's a brokenness. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, repentance means that you realize you are a guilty, vile sinner. Contrast that with what we read a moment ago. You're a, you're a, a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, and you deserve wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. So that's the bad news, followed quickly by the good news, but Christ died so I can find eternal life. Christ died when he said it's finished. He accomplished the salvation of all those that would, would ever come to him. What, what Jesus is addressing here, and this hard saying is, take up your cross, deny, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, is he's understanding that you don't fully get it. So if somebody's come to you, here you go, and they presented the gospel, especially in the midst of, let's say, hurt and pain. So this happens all the time. You're really hurting. It, it could be economics. We see that all around us. It could be a relationship. It could be a physical thing. And somebody comes along to you, and for whatever reason, they present the gospel or a gospel, and you respond to it. It's very common to assume when all of a sudden you believe somehow God's going to take away all the challenges and the problems. I'm sick, he'll make me healthy. My marriage is falling apart, he'll put it together. I don't have a job, he'll get me one. Same thought process that these people were going through. He's going to be the political messiah. He's going to be the economic messiah. And Jesus has stopped right up here and he said, listen, here's the deal. If you're really mine, let's not talk about benefits right now. Let's talk about the cost. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take your agenda and kind of move it to the side. Now, here, I, I'm, going to, I'm not going to give you the author's name because I really like this guy. But, but I, I'm not sure I buy the way, I don't like the way it's said. Here's what he writes. This isn't about having your needs met. 
This is, it isn't about getting what you want. This is about you saying no to all your needs, all your desires, all your hopes, all your ambitions, all your dreams, all your schemes, all your plans. Well, I don't think that's true. Here's what happens when I come to Christ. Among a whole bunch of other things, this is really key now, he changes my wanter. He changes my, I'll give you the same list of words, desires, hopes, ambitions, dreams, schemes, and plans. And some of them may very much even be the same. So you may be a person who's driven in business. You're, you're obsessed with it. You want to be successful because you want to prove you're the best. You want to make the most. You're driven. Now, I'm not saying that all of a sudden you come to Christ and go, well, business isn't important anymore. Yes, it's important, but it's important as a platform to glorify God and manifest his grace and mercy to you. I, I was uh, reading an interview one day with a Major League Baseball pitcher. And so he was saying, pitch for the Cubs, that's part of his problem. He was saying that as he throws, okay, he, he, he would never, because they were saying, they were talking about pitching, and he said, I could never throw at a guy, and, then, and, and here's why. Here's what he said. I'm a Christian. Well, every once in a while, you got to put one right in their ear to move them off the plate. If you don't move them off the plate, they're, gonna, they're digging in there, and they're setting, and bam, bam, they're going to just drill you. Now, I got all this. I get, here's what I know. The minute I go down this road, there's all sorts of tension in this. What we're saying is we want to do the right thing the right way for the right reason. Some of you, just this talk right here, this part right here, that last three minutes, it's going to screw you up for months. You're going you're to spend months trying to figure out, what do I want? Is it really me? Is it God in me? I don't know. You don't know. Listen, I want to do the right thing the right way for the right reason. God put that desire in your heart, but do it for his glory, not for your agenda. So all of a sudden, here's what may happen. I may have these five agenda items. Maybe only three make it to the new agenda that I have, but those three are there, and God's put it in my heart, and he's driven me this way, and he's put them there for this ultimate reason, for his glory. That's all. So I deny myself. So here's what I'm saying. It's not about me. It's not what about me. Here we go. God, it's really what about you. Here's how I know it's what about you because I'm, I'm saying to the people around me, it's not what about me, it's what about you. It's not what can you do for me, but what can I do for you. Jesus said it, I came not to be served, but to serve. Follow me. What, what does that mean? That whole idea of follow me simply means obey. In, in John 14, night before he died, Jesus has the boys together. Here's what he said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right before that, in John 13, I think it's 13, 34, he says, here's how the world's going to know that you're my disciple. All right? Better write it down. Better remember this. This is a big one. Here's how the world's going to know that you're my disciple. And he's got a blank, blank sheet of paper there. He can put anything. Go to church. Go to Bible study. Don't do this. Don't. Here's a, that you love one another. So Jesus paints for us here really an interesting portrait. Here's what he says. If you want to come after me, if you're one of those that are going to say, Jesus is my guy. I, I, I think I told you, I'm walking through the mall one day, and there's 
girl has on a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Well, I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. I don't have a problem with that. So I said to her, you know, that's kind of a cool shirt. What does it mean? She said, I don't like to talk about religion. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sorry. Turn it inside out or something. I mean, that to me is an, that's an invitation, for, especially for somebody like me. That's inviting me into your life, right? So, so Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my homeboy, if you want to follow me, then here's what you need to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Now, these guys understood what he was saying. He's talking about something now that's horrific. Rejection and hostility and brokenness and shame and suffering, all of that. He's saying, this isn't checking a box at a breakfast or praying a prayer or walking out. That may be the vehicle, but the reality of that is if that's happening, you're going to deny yourself. There's a new agenda now, and you're going to take up your cross. And you're going to do it, what's he say? Take up your cross what? daily oh, there's no finish line to this baby till i'm in heaven it's every day what's my cross my wife we hear about my wife my job no your, your cross is following christ john MacArthur said this this is the gospel it's the gospel of self-denial it's the gospel of self-sacrifice self-submission deny yourself take up your cross every day put your life on the line now, I even have trouble when I read that. Do you really feel like your life is going to be on the line tomorrow for Jesus? Driving down the 101 at 90 might be. But I don't, I don't, I don't feel like they're going to come and haul me out of our house for Jesus. What he's saying is, listen, this is the real deal that should affect every aspect of your life. And then follow me. This is expensive. I read that. If I, if I got that, that sounds expensive to me. Doesn't it? That's going to cost me something. There's, there, there is whatever, whatever words you want to put in there. there. There's sacrifice, there's investment, there's whatever. I'm going to take my life. Here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to take this life and I'm going to give it to you. So feel, let's go, let's go with what I talked about. You don't, you don't get a lot of what I read, that, that, that quote from 30 years ago. It seems like it's, it, it's, it's less prevalent now. But, but it's so subtle now. I just realized when I was putting the lesson together that the last two or three weeks, I've been complaining about the health and wealth and prosperity guys. But, but maybe that's because that's a, that's a new version of that old stuff. I'm listening to one of these guys the other day, and he said, listen, I need a jet, a new jet. And the reason I, I don't know, I make this up. I got no reason to make it. The reason I need a new jet, so I want to know, because I may need a jet. <laughs> I don't know if I need a jet. He said, I need a new jet. The reason I need a new jet is the one I have will not be transatlantic. He can't get me all the way across the Atlantic. And I have crusades and stuff to do in Africa, Europe. I need a new jet. Well, no. You, you, you need to go online and, and check fares and schedules because like American Airlines, there's a whole bunch of airlines, United, that will get you over there right now. Right? Now, I'm not making a judgment, though it sounds like it. I'm not making a judgment on that jet. I'm just saying, I'm just fascinated. That's the logic. It's been there from the very beginning. We're Stay in chapter 9. We'll come back. We'll give you a great illustration in a minute. Look at verse 57. So Jesus has continued his dialogue back and forth. And verse 57, he says, 
As they were going along with the, in, on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. So Jesus said, really? The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another one said, follow me. And, and I'm sorry. And he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. There's an edge here. So here's what they're saying. Jesus is saying, you're going to come along. Well, look, at, I don't even have a place to sleep. He's not saying, I'm going to give you a big house. I'm going to give you a jet to get to a crusade. He doesn't say, I'm going to heal every disease and put every relationship together. All that, all that stuff. Who wouldn't want a Jesus like that? I mean, there's a certain sense in which you ought to be able, cut me slack, to sell Jesus to anybody if your theology is not an issue. You want to be happy? You want to be wealthy? You want to be wise? You want your spouse to come back? You want your dealer to close? You want everything to be fine? Come to Jesus. That's what he wants. That's not what he wants for you necessarily. He may want you sick and he may want you poor. And there's a cost associated with it. It's not an insurance policy that says life is going to be just as smooth as can be. But boy, when the world we live in, here you go. Because you've got what I think Jesus, I think biblical Christianity, and then you've got the American dream. I still, I can't get anybody to define it for me, but I, but I know it, it has something to do with house and car, school, all that stuff. Well, here's what I know, okay? The American dream is immovable, so we redefine the theology to fit in it. So we talk about rugged individualism, and I tend to be that way, free market, capital guy, but biblical Christianity has a lot of, of team sport involved in it. There's a lot of one another's. Uh, the way I'm going to really know if you love me is that I care about you. I'm reading a book. I'm doing an interview this week. Um, and, and, and so they said, do you want to interview this guy? I wrote a Pulitzer Prize. And, and I won a Pulitzer Prize. Wrote a book on Cornelius Vanderbilt. 600 pages. And I'm just slapping along in this book. Oh, my gosh. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And I was telling Neil today, I've developed no feelings for Vanderbilt. I don't like him. I don't hate him. It's very strange. I don't know if I've ever read a biography where I went, I don't even really care about the guy. But one thing this guy do is he'll just take you out. Every competitor along the way, he just took them out of the way. Now, that's free market. That's where we live. That American dream, go get it, go get it, go get it. That doesn't seem to be a big concern of Jesus. That's why there's that clash. So there's a clash. You see it there? There's a clash to those that are listening to him. Martin Luther's dealing with a clash that, you know, 500, 600 years ago, Martin Luther's dealing with that, and we're dealing with it now. Then all of a sudden we presented a, a, a Jesus that's not theologically accurate, so we just kind of, it cut me slack down. We just repackage him a little bit. Till you're not fulfilled, he'll fulfill you. You don't have peace, he'll give you peace. Really? Then he says this, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. So if you want to hang on to this baby, you want to take your life, and he doesn't just mean the, the breath, he, he means everything in it. If you want to save it, you're going to lose it. And whoever loses it for my sake, they'll save it. Jim Elliot, right? Wasn't that Jim Elliot who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? 
So I'm hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. And he's <laughs> you can't save it, pal. It isn't going to matter. You're either going to lose it here or lose it later. So then he asks a profound question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his soul? So Vanderbilt, and I, I, I can't draw anything. I'm not, I, I don't know if it's later in the book. I can't get anything really theological out of it. He seemed to have some affinity for religion at some level. But talk about, talk about profit. So, so this guy, the guy writing the book said, I don't want to tell you what his value or, or wealth is in present dollars. Let me do it this way. At his peak, now since then he's lost billions, but at his peak, Bill Gates, if he were to liquidate everything and the United States were to liquidate all of its assets, meaning people in it, Bill Gates would have one in every $138. Wow. At the time of Vanderbilt died, he would have had one in every $20. This is a rich dude. Here's what he's saying. What does it profit you if you gain all this, but you lose your soul? There's the tension. There's just that constant tension all the time. He's talking about dying to self. Dying to my agenda. Suffering, and in the sense of it, finding a, a, a level of contentment. Being content with wherever God has me and however he's placed me and how I look and how I sound and what gifts I have and what I don't have. I'm going to San Francisco this week to, to talk to a group of 50 young businessmen and women who are at the front end of their career. The only way you get in the group is you've got to have a level of success, but they're at the front end. They're all around 30. So they bring me in. They bring, here's, here's why I'm there. Every silver lining has a cloud, and I'm it, okay? <laughs> so they're all in there talking about blah, 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 and I'm going to go put a lid on your dreams. They're going to talk about Sausalito. I'm going to talk about suffering. I'm going to talk about Mayo Clinic. That's what Jesus is saying here. Get your mind around this. That if you really want to be my kid, then everything will turn out okay, but it not, may not be the way you want it to be. You're going to get everything you want in terms of peace and love and joy, but you might not get everything in there along the way that you think will do it. Isn't that, isn't that what happens? How many times has that happened? Look at Obama right now. He's got to be going, I really wanted this thing, and I'm telling you, I, I, I don't think so. All of these guys lined up, Santorum, every one of them, they're all lined up, and they want to be president, and they're killing them. So, yeah, I think I'm going to find happiness. I don't think so. Right now, you got, you got the same thing going on in Major League Baseball. you got the Cardinals and the Phillies and the Diamondbacks and the Brewers and the Yankees and the Rays and the Tigers and the, whoever else is the Rangers. So they're, when they're going to beat each other, they're going to beat each other, they're going to beat each other, and somebody, somebody's going to win. Be the champion. We are the champions, my friend. Every year, because I used to do Major League Baseball conferences, every year the highest divorce rate the next year on the team, the, highest, the team with the highest divorce rate is the team that won the World Series the year before. Isn't that interesting? Cliff Harris, Charlie Waters, 
Dallas Cowboys hardcore finally win the Super Bowl. And according to Time Magazine, they're sitting in the locker room afterwards, still dirty, still sweaty, still smell. And one says to the other, who do we play next? I hesitate to say it, but when you win the Super Bowl, you're depressed. Because that's what the world says. Get this. And I'm not saying those aren't legitimate. Go, strive hard. But if you think being a champion is going to make you happy, all you gotta do, all you gotta do is look at the, the the heap of guys who are testimony that that's not true. Following Jesus is expensive. I don't just mean money. I, I mean there's costs, suffering, pain, hardship all along the way. But ultimately, when I know. That follow him. Want to know what he wants me to do? I got to do it. I'm going to show you a video. Nine minutes and six seconds. It's self-explanatory. I'll come back and put some kind of guardrails around it. So let's take a look at this. Hey, Redemption. Pastor Justin here. If you don't know who I am, I am the uh, primary leader and communicator at the Tempe and Arcadia campuses. I was the founding pastor of Praxis Church, and I'm here today to uh, announce a change, a transition that's going to be happening over the course of the next couple of months. Um, before I get to the announcement, I want to go back to the beginning, really the genesis of, of why we're here and that goes back almost 10 years ago um, as a, a buddy of mine who I was pastoring with in San Diego uh, took me to San Francisco for the annual jazz festival. And I remember standing there in San Francisco right on Haight Street, right in the center of the 1960s hippie movement. And I was standing in front of this old Catholic church that had been all boarded up for some time. And I remember standing there looking at that church. I remember it vividly, just thinking, this place needs a church. This, this city, this place, it needs a church that can talk about Jesus and, and really love the city. Well, about two years after that, um, I got the call to, to plant a church. And as I thought through that and prayed through that, there were five cities that were uh, kind of on my short list. And number one was San Francisco, and number two was Portland, and Seattle, and San Diego. And number five was, was Tempe. And to be honest, and I've told the story a thousand times, uh, Tempe was not really on my radar. It was not really where I wanted to go, but I felt really strongly um, after praying through it and getting counsel that that's where God wanted us to go. And so um, we came to Tempe about seven years ago and we planted Praxis Church and uh, it's been phenomenal. It has been the greatest experience uh, I've ever had in the midst of those seven years. I got married and I had two kids and I made uh, an amazing amount of friends and it's just been really seven great years. About six months ago, the leadership team was doing some team building things. And one of the exercises that we were working on was um, to build your ideal job description. And so I wrote down basically that I'm doing my ideal job. Um, I love my job. I love the people I work with. I love our pastors, our, um, my role in particular, the people we're serving. Uh, I couldn't ask for much more. And then kind of as an addendum at the bottom, I just wrote, the only other thing I could imagine myself doing uh, was planting a church in San Francisco. And um, over the course of the last several years, I'd, I'd brought it up from time to time with our Praxis elders, uh, something that I, I had considered and was thinking about. And each time, for whatever reason, it just, it just wasn't the right timing. And so um, in this moment with the leadership team, when I brought it up, um, they all kind of looked at me and just said, well, is this something that you need to do? 
And for the first time, I felt freed up to think about it and pray about it. And I went home and told my wife um, that the guys were allowing me to, to really think this through and, and pray it out. And so for the last six months, we've been praying and fasting and I've been seeking counsel and we've been talking to those closest to us. And about a month ago, uh, came to the conclusion that next year, myself and my wife um, will be moving to San Francisco to plant Redemption Church San Francisco. Um, This decision was unbelievably difficult. I went back and forth in my head literally hundreds of times. I went back and forth even with the leadership team three times, telling them first that I was going to do it and coming back and going, "Ah, I don't think I can do it. And then finally just saying, I have to do this. I have to do this. This is one of those moments, excruciating as it is and, and as it has been, um, it's a moment where I know that if I, if I was 50 and I didn't do this, I would look back on this moment and, and really feel like I had disobeyed God and, and had this opportunity and this moment in time to go, to go do this. So um, we will be planting Redemption San Francisco. Um, even though it won't be organizationally tied with redemption here, I 100% believe in the vision and the values and the doctrine and everything that redemption is about. We just spent n- not only six years of, of building Praxis and all that that is, but this transition into redemption. I love it so much um, that we're just going to take what we're doing here and, and contextualize it for San Francisco, but uphold so much of, of what we love about about redemption. I, I can't say enough about the leadership team in this process. Um, they've been unbelievably supportive, not only just in allowing us to think about it and pray about it, and, um, but, but making the sacrifice of, of letting us go. Um, and then on top of that, supporting us so generously, um, emotionally and spiritually, but also financially, that um, I, I honestly can't say enough about it. So we have an opportunity here as, as Redemption Church um, to, to spread the gospel and spread our vision, um, even past Arizona, which, which is a surprise. It was not on our radar a year ago when we started to have these discussions, but God does crazy things at crazy moments, and you just, you just never know. Um, San Francisco is a place that has unbelievable need. Um, it, it, geographically, San Francisco is almost the identical size as Tempe, but Tempe has about 150,000 people, and San Francisco has about 850,000 people. And while there are several good churches there on the ground, they are far outnumbered, and um, it's a city that, that needs more people that love Jesus and are talking about Jesus and demonstrating the gospel to them. So as difficult as this process has been, as hard as it will be to say goodbye to the church that I love and so many friends and family members that I love so much, um, it's exciting. Um, to be able to embark on this next phase uh, in, in redemption's life, an opportunity that we have uh, to see the gospel go forward in a, in a, in a pretty dark place. So I ask um, in these next couple of months that you'd really be praying for us, praying first for me and my family, my wife Emily and my daughter Lily and my son Cole. Pray that this transition would go really smoothly. Um, but please also pray for San Francisco. Um, it, it almost becomes cliche at some points to um, ask for prayer. Usually missionaries ask you to pray right before they ask for money. Uh, but there are significant spiritual strongholds in this city um, that, that the only way we are going to overcome is by movement of the Holy Spirit. So please pray. Um, pray for my family. Pray for San Francisco. Continue to pray for redemption. This is an all-in moment for Redemption Church, and and I'm excited to see um, what will happen. So I love you. 
We'll miss you desperately, um, but we'll be around for the next six months um, in transition. You'll see me around. I'll continue to preach um, and, and lead through this transition. But I'm excited about um, the direction of redemption. I'm excited about the gospel being planted in San Francisco. So I love you. God bless. So there you go. That's a, Justin did a great job, I think, of kind of teeing that up the best he could in terms of just kind of helping you see the, the scope and the longevity of the issue. When, when we sat down almost a year and a half ago and we were talking about redemption, uh, we, we were just going back, you know, what's our, what's our future? You know, I'm, I'm always at the, they were always talking to me first. You know, for a long time, they were worried I was going to get hit by a bus. Now they realize that isn't going to happen. I'm beginning to think it's a prayer request. But, but uh, you know, how long are you going to do it? Yada, yada, yada. So we're all talking about our futures. And, and Justin said, you know, I, the only thing I've ever wanted to do is go do something in San Francisco. But, but this is, you know, this is where we are. This is important. And, and that just hasn't gone away for him. He's talked to a whole lot of people he respects a couple of them are big nationwide guys, and really they've said to him, you're out of your mind. Uh, basically, not because of San Francisco, but because as they look at redemption and what's going on here. And, and yet Justin, and he, and he did, he's gone back and forth. It's been very hard for him, and very difficult for us too. I mean, this is an expensive move. Uh, he, is, he is somebody who's been really a key, especially on the, on the Arcadia and Tempe campus for us. So this, so this, is, a, this is a big deal. But it's also part, I think, of what happens. We said from the beginning that we hold this thing really loosely. Um, that that it, 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 may, it may be something like this. And honestly, I, I, we didn't foresee that. We said to you when we announced the, the church and we started last January, we said after nine months, ten months, a year, whatever, we're, we're going to learn some things and probably restructure and move some things. This we did, wasn't on the radar screen then. But it is. But we also know in church planning, one, one of the things you learn real quickly in this whole process is you got to hold especially your people loosely. Those who attend, those who serve, those who lead. I, I, was, I, I wrote, when, when, when I watched the video, I got it yesterday, I, I wrote down Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, there's this scene where Paul's in his third missionary journey. So it had to happen at the beginning of his ministry, and it had to happen again toward the end. At the beginning, I'm sure in Acts 13, when Antioch says, we want to send out some guys, I'm sure it was really hard when they decided it was going to be Paul and Barnabas. Eh, we weren't thinking the best guys. <laughs> Acts chapter 20, Paul's now been on this journey, his third missionary journey, and he spent three years in Ephesus, and he's meeting with the elders in Ephesus, and he's saying goodbye and what we have are, are, are tears and prayer and Paul charging them and, and telling them, you know, I, I never shrank from teaching you the whole truth and, and watch out. But I, I, I guarantee you there was a time where somebody said, Paul, you're getting older. You've been here three years. The ministry's really moving along. What do you think about staying? And, and I can tell from the emotion, all you do is read the passage in Acts 20. You can tell from the emotion he had an affinity for these people, but he said, no, this is what God has me to do. And I'm really comfortable that this is what God has for Justin's life. I, I don't want to pretend at all that this isn't going to be expected or expensive for us, but I do. I already can sit back and go, but you know who was not surprised by this? Who was not surprised by this? God. So what did he do? Isn't it weird that, what was it, six, eight months ago, maybe a little bit longer, we sent Ricardo from here over to Tempe. Three or four months ago, we sent Tyler over to Arcadia. 
So, so uh, Tyler will be in Arcadia as an interim. We're aggressively trying to, to, to find the, the man that will be the, the permanent teaching pastor there. Ricardo's going to assume that role in Tempe. He's already, he's, he's already brought some ministry of his and leadership to that church in Tempe. We're, we're so happy for it. God had that. So I, I, this ties a lot, though the timing is off. I wish I could have held off two weeks. But we couldn't. But this ties in really well to what I want to say on the 16th. You need to be with us that day. Uh, what, what Justin asked for is, is really clear. It's what he needs. Prayer. You know, he, he and Emily and Lily and Cole. What's Cole now? Six weeks? Eight weeks? They head up to a place that, that it, it's not just a, a tough place. It's a hostile place. Church planning is tough to do if everybody's on board and you're starting with a team. When you're starting with essentially maybe two people, maybe another couple will go. For, that's tough. So pray. If you know people who are in the Bay Area, and then people who may be interested, or you're going, they're happy in their church. We're not looking for somebody necessarily to bring to that church, but we want to begin that network. Uh, Justin needs to begin that work, network of, of connecting people. We've already started a little bit with the people we know, but we need a lot of people. You can help there. Maybe you're in the process, even now. Somebody came up after the first service today and said, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm headed back to Boston. Do you think you could do a Redemption Boston? I said, oh, my gosh. I don't, I don't think, you can ask Neil, I guess. That's where Neil's from. But no, I don't think so. But it may be that you're right now, you're working for a company, and they're getting ready to transfer you up to the Bay Area. And one of the things that have been in the way is, well, I don't want to leave my church. Well, you can take your church with you. You know, Justin's there. We'll give you the dates and times of informational meetings because there will be some of you who are going to want to hear more about it just so you know more how to pray and be part of it. Some of you may want to be financially involved. Uh, once you And I've had a lot of time to think about this, and we have. Once you take a breath, what you see is how cool this really is. When we said we want to do this, and I said, this is going to be expensive to us. And understand by that, I don't just mean money, though money's always part of it. <clears throat> I mean people. So it, and it has been already. So we're going to talk about that on the 16th. Here's what it means to you all. You need to step up, all of you now. Not, not just because Justin's moving on, but because of all the needs that we're going to see as God opens doors. Every time we plant, even within the valley now, we see Depending on the proximity, hundreds of people, dozens of people, lots of leaders. Every time I go to one of the other campuses, I, I, I taught at Tempe the other night, and I, I'll bet I saw 50 people that used to go to church here, and they go there now for the right reason. I sat with a lady, and she said, I, I'm going here because my, it's closer to my house and my unbelieving friends. I could never get them to Gilbert. We can walk to this. Those are really good things. So God's doing something really special. We're really excited about it. Church planning is a key part to it, and our philosophy of that is a demanding philosophy. So we're going to talk more about that, okay, on the 16th. But be praying for that. That's an exciting announcement. That's a really, really good news, and we're, we're, we're thrilled God's doing that. So let me pray. Matthew's going to come. If you're in the conference center, he'll be back in just a second. Close your time there here in the chapel. He's going to lead us in prayer, and then the team will come and, and lead us in in worship, and then we'll adjourn. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the amazing truths and the, and the great work that you do. God, remind us that, that following you is a, is a narrow, hard, demanding way, but it leads to life. 
God, help us grapple with that. What is the providence if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? God, help us understand that you call us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. God will do that with your spirit and your strength. We pray to you in Christ's name. Amen.